Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach. Give me great food. Tacos. Give me adventure. Hiking. Give me a date night. Sunset cruise. Give me some smiles. Cheese. Give me more beaches. Beaches. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. I bet you're smart. Yeah, and you like to hold your own in the group chat. We can help you drop even more knowledge. My name is Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Izadi. We host a daily news podcast called Post Reports. Every weekday afternoon, Post Reports takes you inside an important and interesting story with the kind of reporting that you can only get from The Washington Post. You can listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. Go find it now and hit follow. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count for your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. My name is Jeffrey Zakarian, and you're listening to Four Courses with Jeffrey Zakarian from iHeartRadio. In Four Courses, I'll be taking you along for the ride while I talk with the top talent of our time. In each conversation, I focus on four different areas from my guest's life and career. And during those four courses, I'm going to dig deep and uncover new insights and inspirations that we can all use to fuel ourselves to push forward. My guest for this episode was a judge on Project Runway for six years, is known for making stunningly beautiful gowns for celebrity red carpet appearances, and he even designed the sharp and classic uniforms worn by Delta flight attendants. Without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Zach Posen. Hi. How are you? Long time. I know. Crazy. I feel like Star Trek. You know, we got beamed up. We just got beamed back. Totally. You know? What happened? I don't know, but we're coming back. For my first course, Zach paints a vivid picture of his bohemian upbringing in New York City's Soho neighborhood. Early life for you was kind of amazing. I mean, I know I've been in New York since 1980, so I think yeah. you were born. I moved to 81, I think. I was born in 1980. Yeah, and <laughs> my idea of Soho, I can only tell you, was it was much cooler in 1981 than it is now. Not that it's not cool now, don't get me wrong, but it's it's hyper-commercialized now to the point where you know, you feel bad walking in these shops because you have no business being in them. <laughs> That's the way I feel. Listen, like so. Soho in the 80s was, you know, artists, galleries, <sighs> like very few kind of avant-garde fashion shops. And that was <sighs> it. And a lot of graffiti. 
and it was dirty, and it was something that was just fantastic about it. And I don't know, I mean, I, it's hard to say why I long for those days, but I kind of do, and I kind of long for Times Square the way it was, too, in the 70s and 80s. I mean, everything doesn't have to be Disneyland all the no. time. I think it rinses, you know, it's like the alternate word for water and like Buddhism is chaos. Yeah. Because when it comes like a tsunami, it just destroys everything. It's just how you control your water. You know? Yeah. So I think a little of that, a little of that chaos of Soho was fantastic. And I remember like living it at Jerry's, you know? Yeah. And I mean, like, of course. It was like the character and the characters you saw. On, in Soho were like mind-boggling. I don't, I don't think this, it wasn't like the village. It was very different. It was literally 500 yards from the village and it was like another country. Yeah. When you were a kid, how did that affect you? Like, I mean, it's what I knew as a child, right? It's all I knew. Like above 14th Street was like no man's land growing up. Like exactly. a real downtown kid. So it was. Did you live in a higher apartment or did you live in a lower apartment? We lived in the middle of the building on the third floor. And half of the okay. loft was my dad's studio. He's a painter. And the other half was our living space. That is so cool. I mean, I don't think there's a cooler existence. And that's how I knew. That's like all my friends were kids that lived that way. What did you experience as a kid that in the very beginning, what was something that really attracted you to be downstairs and sit outside and like stare at people? Because that's what I used to do. I mean, Soho was like full... Characters. It was people expressing themselves, like full self-expression, subculture, artists. That's what it was. You know, a lot of homeless people then too, or like, you know, squatters. There were still squatters. It was still a cutting district. It was still a garment, partially a garment district. And it had just changed before from being zoned to allow artists or people to even legally live in the lofts. You know, it was a real cultural mix. You had the Italian community still there, parts of Little Italy kind of melding into Chinatown. I mean, that's where we grocery shopped. That's what I knew. And then I watched it kind of slightly start to change. There were definitely like supermodels of the 80s that started to move there. Definitely some great, you know, performers and artists. But it, it was pretty bohemian of an existence. And then some of the fancier shops slightly started to open there, right? And there was like a different crowd. Yeah. Because my parents were there since the early 70s and I'm born 1980. So they really watched storefronts starting to open. And So your mom, your mom was immersed in acquisitions and your dad is this like seriously avant-garde artist. I mean, how did that coalesce into an apartment in Soho? <laughs> Who made this decision like, Honey, we're living down here, or sweetheart, I think we should go to Soho. Was it which person made the decision? Yeah, I mean, I'll say, you know, they have an interesting background. You know, they met in Italy, then they moved back to New York. They were both in university. And my mom wasn't uh, a corporate lawyer at that point. She had many different kind of interesting careers. And when I was in her belly, she was in law school. But they moved to the loft, I think, in like 74. And they needed a space for him to paint. They needed good light. That's why people moved to Soho. It was good light, high ceilings, affordable. It's still a stretch for them. And that's when they moved there. You know, half of the loft was our living space. And, you know, my sister and I grew up in the middle of the loft, which, you know, probably is not allowed, but we did. Our living room looked onto a huge open parking lot. And that was like a major graffiti center. So it was like I looked onto this living wall of art that was constantly changing and moving. And uh, 
as Soho changed on the front of the loft on Spring Street, my mom thought I should learn how to count by selling lemonade. (laughs) And that's really where, like, kind of this entrepreneurial spirit and marketing came into play. And she'd set me up there, and Soho had become, like, a major tourist destination on, like, especially on weekends. And I was banking. I mean, I had a whole system. She'd go up in the hand-operated elevator, bring it down. I had a little check tablecloth, and I started to learn my customer, probably starting at like six years old. Six. So this is 1986, 87. Yeah. Wow. A cup of lemonade was a quarter, and uh, four quarters equaled a dollar. And then she would smartly show me and take off the top quarters and say, that's cost of goods. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm waving. I'm waving your rent. You're going to get your rent for free. Security is for free because I was like, look, probably like half my age. You know, she was afraid I'd get kidnapped because Soho was still a little like sketchy. Yeah, it was rough. It was yeah. rough. So I, I imagine with the picture you painted, which I'm sorry, it's like kind of an idealization of how I would like to have been brought up, like half in a loft. I remember living um, down there and um, at a loft owned by Sal Cucinata in Tribeca. And I'll never forget the light in Soho and Tribeca at a certain time was just magical. I can almost smell your apartment. What did it, What was the smell like? I mean, you're cooking. My dad cooked every night. Is he painting at the same time? He would time? be painting. Yeah, mixture of Yeah, smells. so it's the oil smell that's like home. Like I go into a space, I smell like oil paint, it's home for me. And so we had to respect my dad and his creative process. So his door like would stay closed, right? And we had to learn really young, like not to bug our dad. And then my mom would be at the office. And then my dad really felt strongly a family that ate together, stayed together. Dinner was really important. You know, they met in Italy. They didn't come from food backgrounds or from parents that really cooked seriously or that well. My dad's from St. Louis, Missouri, so like ribs he knew. But, you know... (laughs) Gravy bread, that kind of you know stuff, and and my mom you know was born in the city and then moved out to New Jersey to her chagrin, and her dad had a liquor store on like right off Forty Second Street, right after Prohibition. So, but anyhow, they met in Italy, so that started their like food conversation. They met in Florence in the sixties oh before the flood. And so that started, and then they were, like, living in the East Village. But I also think it was, like, a major time of food revolution in this country, right? Like, and they really were on that journey and that that New York Times journey, I think, with it. And living near Chinatown, Little Italy, like, it all came together. And my dad would cook amazing meals for us. And it was an open kitchen, right, to the living room because it's a loft. Of course. And uh, it was electric, although our upstairs neighbors had a gas range, which only later I was kind of envious of. You know, it was eclectic fare, I would say. Went with the different, you know, food trends, I guess, that would come in. A lot of, you know, he did a great, like, pasta puntinesca. Oh, man. And then, you know, more healthy stuff. And then, you know, once a week takeout. Or delivery, you know, which was probably at the time like Empire Szechuan. <laughs> <laughs> so dad cooked. Dad cooked. My mom used like baking as a thing to like do with us on the weekends. You know, it was a pretty fabulous kind of 
open kitchen and it was the center of the house and extended to a dining table. My parents entertained and, you know, I think a loft lends itself to kind of a theatricality. There's a kind of stage open quality to a loft. And, you know, I think my sense of fantasy and play transitioned and figurines transitioned to like extend into the living space. I have really fond memories. I didn't know anything else. Like all my friends were kids that come to some degree lived in different variations like this. We were downtown kids. On Halloween, all the kids, because it wasn't safe to trick or treat alone, uh, were organized (laughs) together. And all the different artists would kind of decorate their studio spaces. And we'd go in groups at night to the different houses and see whatever you know, crazy installation setup they would do. And, you know, we'd shop at the green market. And then my mom built, and the building built a roof garden. I mean, I think we tried corn, we had grapes. And Soho at that time, there was a gardening community on the roofs. And that was really, I think, interesting to me because I met like older neighbors that were really into this and seed trading across rooftops. Uh, I remember once there was a horrible fire on on a building, like a few buildings over, and this woman who had built this beautiful garden like us and everybody and everybody coming together to move the plants over. And I still think my parents still have plants. They now live on a farm. I think we still have plants from that. And I just think that sense of cultivation really stayed with me. And I think even though I entered into like fashion and media and everything, I've always had, I like this kind of very grounded side. I like to get my hands in the ground. I like to grow my own ingredients. I mean, there's nothing better. The flavor of something that you've put that love and care into, it just tastes better. It's like when you cook with love, you taste it. I also find that it's, I get, I'm getting so many like visuals because I know New York so well. I'm getting a visual of the heat on an August in a in a, in a loft in hot, Soho, hot. and I'm getting a visual of you being upstairs on that roof with the silver, yep. un, uneven rooftop, yeah. just throwing heat off in waves. I mean, we were as kids, like my friends and I, and the one other kid that grew up in the building. I mean, we were like scaling those buildings. I mean, I don't, you know, I just think if I ever have kids, it's like crazy. Uh, I'm thinking today where I live, like I can't have kids here. And I, you know, it's definitely fenced off. I mean, we'd sit on the side of that building, like riffraffs, you know, I don't know, climbing from one building to the next. It was like a jungle gym, but somehow (laughs) we just did it. It was, and it was, it was definitely felt like our large playground. I bet you're smart. Yeah, and you like to hold your own in the group chat. We can help you drop even more knowledge. My name is Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Izadi. We host a daily news podcast called Post Reports. Every weekday afternoon, Post Reports takes you inside an important and interesting story with the kind of reporting that you can only get from The Washington Post. You can listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. Go find it now and hit follow. 
Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com iHeart. That's LifeLock.com iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200K for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does the hard parts for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billings, scheduling, and more with a home management team that provides support before, during, and after your stay so you can focus on the relaxing, hosting, and making memories with family and friends. And you can resell on Picasso's Marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. With Picasso, you can stop saying someday and start building family traditions today in a vacation home you own and revisit time after time. Visit Picasso.com today to see thousands of luxury vacation home listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O.com. For my second course, Zach outlines his early cultural influences and shares his inspirations from creators outside of the fashion world. Tell me, like lemonade. Yeah, your dad's painting fabric. Yep. You get a little. You get some coin, and then suddenly you decide that at uh, I don't know. You're like into clothes. I wanted to be a song and dance kid. Like that was my thing. My parents raised me on like, you know, the American songbook and there were all the records yeah. of like the great American musicals. And that's just like my sister and my dad recorded like everything on VHS. 
he did expose me to like everything, and that's what I wanted to do. And then my voice changed. <laughs> and I was always like in my room making stage and theater and costume. Like that was a big part of our childhood and dress. And I had an older sister that, you know, was very nurturing in that. But, you know, I started making clothing for my girlfriends when I was like 14. Wow, you lucky people. Sewing these girls, and they were like, you know, kind of, you know, 14, 15, 16, like girls in my class that were starting to model or had been scouted or interacting in the fashion, actual real fashion scene. And I just thought it was so damn, it seemed from afar like so fabulous and glamorous and some, you know, interesting kind of culmination of theatricality and expression. And I will say also, let's go like 1996, fashion had changed and fashion had become very expressive and very crafted theater that was very fanciful with designers like John Galliano and Alexander McQueen coming into it that really changed the fashion game. And I was just like entrenched into this. And also New York still had subculture. So there was still yeah, like did. this like underground drag queen. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that anymore. I don't that's what they were called. You can then. say whatever you want. I don't know. I feel whatever the terminology today was whatever. That's what they performers that yeah. you know were self-created at the time. And I grew up downtown, so I started going like at 16 to these places called Jackie 60s that was like an underground, you know, fringe place and you know, seeing how people express themselves and it just immersed itself into me making these frocks and dresses for my girlfriends and then designing for like the theater of my school. You know, then I had to make a choice whether to go to like an academic school because I had changed high schools. I went to an amazing high school called St. Anne's that was really formative. Yes. And it was an amazing group of very creative people and you could make your own curriculum. And I just like, couldn't believe the resources. They had a costume shop, and I just lived in this costume shop and used those sewing machines and materials. And I applied to design schools. I had done an internship for about two and a half, three years at the Metropolitan Museum in the costume collection Wow! in high school. And that was like really formative. That was like my fashion history, started to meet designers, started to think about fashion as an art form, which I had never thought about because I'd been raised in this idea of fat, of art not for the purpose of commerce, right? Like art is for dialogue, for expression, history, and emotion. And in a weird way, like I'd grown up in the 80s with, with a whole generation of kids of artists where, you know, a market had really formed around it. So I was like finally finding this idea of fashion as an art form and learning my language of what I wanted to create. And I went to design school and I moved to England. I moved to England, went to design school, and really like took London by storm. I was like a real character in New York. You know, I walked around in like a fake fur, floor length jalaba coat, you know, and wore ivy in my hair and, you know, fedora feathers and all the scraps that I would find in Soho every day and kind of get away with it and pull it off on the subway. Uh, it was like a fashion show for me, the city, and my subway car especially. I had like the same people going to Brooklyn every day on the NR train. <laughs> and it would be like a commentary of like this crazy outfit with this little kid 
dressed up and uh, yeah, led me to London to go to design school and I hit the ground running. And from there, like press started and I knew, yeah. and I kind of, you know, I wanted to work for people and then real retailers wanted to like partner with me. Yeah. What effect did like, I mean, you're right, you're in the bullseye of 84 is MTV, 88 is VH1. I'm an MTV kid. Born into it. Bookend that with the movie Wall Street with Michael yeah. Douglas. And you have such a gigantic visual museum of culture that is so specific, bombarding you every day. You got and it. I can't imagine coming from where you came from, you must have sensory overload. How can you not? I mean, you're, it seems like you were like created to do this. Kind of. Yeah, it felt pretty natural. Who is your sort of mentor? Not mentor, it's a bad word sometimes. Who, your, your visuals, when you said, who would you like, your top three, you would say, you know, this person is that classical line I love. Oh, that's hard. Like, which designers do I love? Not designers, but oh. it could be anybody. People say, which chefs do you like? And I talk about sensibilities. Because, I mean, I mean, there's a lot of great chefs. Yeah. You're not a copy of chef. Yeah, I like Imagineers, right? Like people that really build universes and build built world. So like, you know, I can go from anywhere from like a Fellini to like a Jim Henson to like a Cristobal Balenciaga to the French Laundry, you know, like, and then, yeah. you know, like I, I, I like people that have really deep, rich worlds. You know, I'll say in terms of food world, like I have an aunt that bakes a lot and likes lifestyle. And I will never forget when she gave my mom the first Martha Stewart living cookbook, the first one. Wow. And it changed my whole perspective because all of a sudden it was like lifestyle and it was these funny numbers like cooking for 32 and it was so <laughs> idiosyncratic <laughs> and, and odd but like fulfilled this kind of bizarre fantasy of like illusions of grandeur that were so different from my upbringing but so intriguing to me, and I was also really dyslexic and had ADD, so like visuals of cookbooks were really powerful for me. The other thing that was really important was this cookbook my dad called called Varenne Pratique, and it's from like the school, the Varenne School of France, and it was oh, visual. And I would take this and then like go get a fish in Chinatown and like teach myself how to do this or how to temper chocolate and play with chocolate for hours and days. And then on TV, there was no food and cooking network yet. But there was a show called Great Chefs, and it was just like the voiceover. I can't remember what channel it was on at the time, like, but I would love the show because it was like all these chefs from around the world or domestically cooking their signature dish and watching their hands with their voiceover. And it was like high cuisine. And I would then go home and try to like interpret that and these like crazy techniques. And I just, you know, I went on to, into this like baking, crazy baking vortex of like, you know, and I would just bake cakes on the weekend. At that point, my parents had found a small farmhouse in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. And like for any kind of like neighbors or events or anywhere I could, I would like spend like two days crafting the pastry or, or the cake and, you know, super elaborate, you know, using balloons to dip in chocolate to get the chocolate dome and score it on the inside so when you hit it it made a shape you know crazy intricate stuff um you know and then I had to like 
forget all that baking. <laughs> uh, you know, it was really regimented. And, you know, a lot of trial and error in that, you know, a lot of, you know, mooses that became runny and... Yeah, no, that's the way it goes. That's the way you learn. But the good thing, the good good thing about cooking is if you you fuck up a dress, pardon my language, you you can't eat it. You know what I mean? If you mess up a souffle, you can still have dessert, you know, it's going to be fine. You just learn how to do it, right? I mean, my girlfriends might argue, they kind of like my fucked up dresses. (laughs) Like, you know, over the years, like, my image or like who I was... We defined this place where it met kind of what I had become and represented, right? But it wasn't necessarily as it, it used my skill set, which I had trained in like high craft, which had been disappearing in America. And so then like the clothing came became like really more uptowny, I would say. And that was really interesting, right? Because it like gave a marketplace for my technique and and craft that I had learned. But like the girlfriends always just like the fuck ups and the things that were rougher and felt more like me because like I am naturally kind of have like a more punk expressive side to me. And now I'm at the stage where it's like, how do I kind of refine that? And and that's exciting. Yeah. That's like a fun moment to be in. You're such a I mean, grounded foundational person. You you seem very classical. Your lines are almost classical in yeah. some very distinct ways. And how did how did the you know you dress a lot of entertainers? Yeah. So how did the entertainment world collide for you? Yeah. Here you are, someone that is so creative and so downtown and driven, and now you're Hollywood celebrities that come into your place to to get fitted. I love Gene Kelly. Yeah. I like singing in the rain. I, mean, <laughs> I can fake it <laughs> as pinpointed to that. Um, you know, I how does that? How do you square think that? that? Wanting to be a performer in, in its start, or being intrigued with like the movie process. You know, I got sent like after my first show by Vogue magazine. Uh, I was housed in L.A. by the the West Coast editor, and I did my first trunk show there. Right, and I just started to. I'd been dressing people like Naomi Campbell saw a dress of mine on a girlfriend and like needed to find that dress when I was in London. So it had like just started and I started going out in New York pretty young, right? And like in that scene and it was like that mix of that time in the mid or you know 90s when it all mixed together. So like they had seen me grow up like these supermodels and or supermodels even to be like who seemed way older than me actually were like only a year older than me, but you know, living adult lives, um, you know, were with me through this journey. And so then it was like everybody, you know, the big stars then started to get a smell of it and wanted it. And then I started doing shows and I went out to LA with this collection. And I remember I did my first trunk show and, uh, this woman walks in and then she left. She like touched everything, didn't say anything and left. And then like five minutes she came back in and introduced herself and said, hello, I'm Angelica Houston. You know, oh and that's God. like, you know, and it was like the legends. And I think that like Hollywood just really got me. And I was very theatrical and kind of naturally naively poised for that. And we just like fed off each other and became like a dance that started, you know, 20 years ago and became really integrated into my brand. And then I became, and then Natalie Portman was going to college with my upstairs neighbor. 
Uh, they were in college together. His, his name is Zeke. We were the Z's on Spring Street. Zeke and Zach. The Z's on Spring and Street. And he said, like, my that. young, my friend I grew up with, he's making dresses. And she had her first, like, Star Wars movie coming out. And it was after 9-11. And I had made this dress called the Empire State Dress. And she <laughs> wore this dress. She came to the studio. I met her. We fit this dress. And it was, like, one of those moments where, um, and this is pre-internet, where, like, Print just picked up on this moment. She had written, like, I love New York on her arm, wearing this dress that was kind of old Hollywood. It was very her. It's very, like, kind of felt, feels very MGM, Judy Garland and New York. And it was graphic. But it was, like, I remember the next morning, it was, like, on the cover of, like, the Daily News, the, the, the New York Post, like, I think, like, on the back cover page of, like, the New York Times. And it was, like, that moment, like, whoa, the image of this dress translated and Natalie and all that, that whole vibe. Yeah, it was like a whole culmination. I don't know. Like I grew up three blocks from my really close friend Claire Danes and I was making her dresses. So it was like I young Hollywood naturally, like pre-stylists in an industry, the actresses really and the models really were my champions that built built me. You know, and then it became more of an industry, that whole thing. And I watched it form. I mean, you know, when I first would go out to Hollywood, it was like direct with celebrities. Then the stylists started coming into place and then they kind of became celebrities themselves. And really amazing thing to kind of watch. The one thing is, is, you know, fashion brands started to realize the power of the red carpet. And really strong. I mean, Armani as a brand and company had been doing it for years. They had that game down and owned it forever. But other people realized like the reach because when I started, like dressing celebrities was almost a faux pas in fashion. Like it was seemed as not having celebrities at your fashion show or even the idea of like a socialite or a social was like a no no or it was like an old thing from the 70s. And I was just like breaking all these rules and taking the hits for breaking the rules, but knowing like this was like just instinctually, this is like the future. I also didn't have like marketing budget. This was like how we built our name and brand. And at the same time, kind of weirdly became and was kind of poised for it and became kind of a celebrity myself in that time period with like the Us Weeklies. And, oh my God. Uh, you know, and I just rode this. I mean, I had no idea, you know, I was just on this ride and, you know, took hits, messed up a lot. Uh, but, you know, I came out okay. <laughs> I think messing up is the best fun. I think that's the process of happiness. You sound like a very happy individual because of those mess ups, because you made shit up. And what happens if you don't make stuff up? You, yeah, you mess stuff up. You also take a lot of, you know, you become a target. Of course. You know, and I was really young. So it was like, you know, it was really natural and it was really uh, ambitious and also, you know, had a lot of energy. And I think that was a lot for people and they didn't like it. But, you know, hey. say la vie, you grow into it. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. 
The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow The Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200K for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does the hard parts for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billings, scheduling, and more with a home management team that provides support before, during, and after your stay so you can focus on the relaxing, hosting, and making memories with family and friends. And you can resell on Picasso's marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. With Picasso, you can stop saying someday and start building family traditions today in a vacation home you own and revisit time after time. Visit Picasso.com today to see thousands of luxury vacation home listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O dot This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. And for my third course, Zach shares some of his visions for the future of the fashion industry. I, I think it's really interesting also, that I, and I, I, I sense this because you wrote a cookbook, uh, Cooking with Zach. And I mean, I listened to your playlist, and it's like, it's one of the best play. I mean, Bobby Darren, Judy Garland, yeah. come on, Louis Prima. Fun to cook I mean, with. I mean, it's like restorative, right? You're just standing over there, you're listening to music. There's no way you can't have a happy smile on your face listening to Louis Prima. Yeah, And making exactly. a bowl of like uh, yeah. spaghetti. I mean, come on. Vongole. But I mean, what, what is better than that? And I think that a lot of 
what I get from you is this, you know, this, this always going back to like what it was that made you happy. And, and that's what you like sort of grew up. You're sort of emulating what you did, you know, in 1980 when your parents yeah. were cooking and working and painting. And it's this, nothing's really changed. It's just that how do we change and what do we want to look like? What do you want to look like in the next 20 years? Because I always think it's the same. It's like, you just got like, God, I, I don't want to be, I'm speaking for myself. Yeah. I want to be less of an asshole. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, me, what do I want? I want to make less waste. Like, I think about, like, I, I, you know, I want to put things out that, you know, have longer meaning to them, right? Like, a lot of fashion was about, there's a level of just inherently of an excess in, in the fashion industry, yeah. and it doesn't have to be that way. I want to teach people how to make their own clothing, and, like, I think that's really interesting and part of, like a movement of a movement that's happening just in the way like people cook at home and like this time during COVID, like people learned how to cook or, yeah. you know, and then what it takes to do it well and, and the process. I think that is something that I look to also taking fashion outside of a um, kind of just functionality, wearability or status place and maybe relook at it how it can be treated in a different level of respective technique really as an art form in a different way is something interesting to me how it can storytell is interesting to me i mean i also like mentoring young people i mean that's a big part no, great. of what i just do and i'm i love producing and i'm like kind of like this like quiet executive producer on a lot of entertainment stuff and film stuff, but also just like in friends in their career that span from like young chefs that are starting up to people in fashion, to actors. So, I mean, I think in the end of the day, you know, I want to be able to get behind putting teams together and kind of be like a creative producer. And I'm excited about that and what that role looks like going back to Singing in the Rain and MGM, like, at a studio. <laughs> um, I'm excited. You know, I'd be very interested to be in a role like Vincent Minnelli was at MGM and just yeah. be able to craft and fine-tune so that you can take people and transport them for that time. Because you never know, like, that spark in when somebody, a young person, an adult, any age person sees something, like... Besides giving them just joy and entertainment, like that can begin their own creative journey. And I'm here just to yeah, promote think, people's own creativity. And I think what you're saying is a lot to do with like legacy. When you mentioned twice, you mentioned Balenciaga, the yeah. first one we opened. But Balenciaga, you talk about no waste in a legacy. You're mentioning him now. It's a hundred years from you know. Yeah. I don't know how many years ago. Yeah. Probably eighty or hundred years ago. And his stuff is so. The stuff is the stuff. Balenciaga is so. It's like it's like Earth. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's like it's like it's like it's not anything, but it's a person. But that person. Yeah, I like stuff that's like integral form. I mean, I'm really yeah. into form. I like cut. I like shape and form at the end of the day. And clothing, like what turns me on is like I don't need. I mean, embroidery is great. It's fun. Surface, like I'm really like I get really turned on by things that have that natural visceral form, like a brancusi. Yeah. It's like, it's, Bingo. it's sexy, and I'm like, whoa, you know, and I can get that same way when I look at like a Nakashimaya table, like that 
you know, I don't know. Maybe that's why people are drawn to like wabi sabi stuff. It has that like broken form. It's un it's natural. It's unperfect, but it's perfect. And then things that do have that perfect form to them, you know, or 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 in sync and sacred geometry to the body. That's interesting to me. Who is one who is in fashion? I'm just gonna yeah. ask you a very specific question. Yeah. Who who is someone as a um a designer right now who is silhouetting the human body in ways that it no one has done before? Great question. Um not many. Right now, not. But in the recent past, uh, Azadine yeah. Alaya really understood the human body. I mean, he he's did. one of like the last great creators of, of a time period. I mean, he really understood how to cut clothing and understood power and femininity, flirtation, like a lot of different yeah. human humor even, um, but very so well executed and precise. That was really real. Uh, right now, I would say that in fashion, what's interesting is there's a whole expression of what I would call like a kind of cultural collage, right? And that's kind of in reflection in a sense to like the surface or communication of social media today, right? And how multiple images and references put together. And the person that I think most interestingly is kind of recycling all of that or putting that together in an expressive poetry. I can't believe I'm using the word poetry here. Is a guy named <laughs> is a guy actually who's the designer of Balenciaga right now, Demna. Like it just has so many references and there's abstraction to it. People are surprised whenever I say that, but it's so well executed that I got to give props and they're building the brand smartly. That's it, you know, and it, it's enchanted high fashion and it's enchanted like the street too. And I think that's a pretty cool place. We're not living in a romantic place in fashion right now. We're not living in a classical place in fashion. I think the industry of fashion right now, like everybody, because it's been shaken, they're like finding themselves. And that's kind of fun to have a little bit of perspective right now to be like seeing what's happening in the playing field and then knowing when to like dive in with like 20 years of this experience. Yeah, you know, you're very, you're very accurate. I mean, I have a good friend, Mickey Drexel. I've known him for 30 yeah. years and I meet him for coffee. I see him at St. Ambrose all the time. And I said, what the hell happened? He goes, I don't know. I, I can't even tell you myself. He says, it's all screwed up. I mean, this is a guy who like, yeah, really he's knows the, he knows that. And then, did he said, look at you. Like, she said, well, here's the reason. Well, what are you wearing? And I tell him what I'm wearing. He said, well, that's the problem because you're wearing 17 people. Right. You know, you're wearing this guy, that guy. I said, but is it that good? Don't you don't you want someone to create for themselves a little, uh, you know, leap motif, a story? You don't just want to wear someone. You don't want a banner like says I'm just yeah. one person, right? And he said, yes and no. Yes and no. Yes and he's no. absolutely he said, right. You know, he's right. He said yes and no. He said brands can't thrive unless you get enough of them to be sold on a level. And then the quality and all that intricacy comes into it and the price in it. He said, but you need to have standards. And he said, that's why it's, it's so fractured. And I didn't understand it until he yeah, said Yeah, the authenticity it. So, is essential, right? I mean, that's yes. what I say. So it has to have like real... It has to be pretty real and authentic. Like the the consumer today, you know, the kids who are doing, you know, the street style, it, it has to be very yeah. real. And, uh, you know, if I thought how I'm dressing today 
from when I had my company going for so long, it's like night and day. Like I like all of yeah. a sudden I'm into like casual clothing and I'm like really into it. And I'm thinking yeah. like, wow, when I start making clothing again, like on a larger scale, not just one of a kind pieces, like, is that going to be incorporated into that? Like, do I really feel right about that? Like, do I think that's elegant anymore? Maybe not, but that's yeah. really good. Like, that's through real life experiences. And it's like, how do I transition and communicate that as a designer through my own life experiences into the work and to my consumer? Because they're on this journey with me. You're really ready, though. You had so much success early on, and now you have this whole giant chunk of time. And you've so intermingled with all this incredible history and wisdom and, and historical events around fashion that you're going to like bring something forth that is very special. You might reinvent the Chino in a way that no one's done it before. You never know. I, I wear a casual way more than I It's not the pandemic. It's not the pandemic. Yeah. We all got lazy. That's why we weren't casual. But I went casual, but I still want to throw a jacket on. But I went casual because casual became such so well made, so well done. You could have sophisticated cuts in a casual manner so they fit properly. It wasn't a boxy shirt. It was like, cool, now it's like it fits. It's like James Purse pants? Me, number one, my, my hang. Everyone, like tons. Fantastic. You know, it's like I started around the same time. Like I always saw it. I thought like this is like a little bit expensive for what I think it is. And then I started, I like went to Malibu for three months and I was like, I need a new Incredible. wardrobe for here. And it's amazing. And Sunspell, right? An old Sunspell. brand. You got Sunspell. it. Sunspell, miraculous. Like, where you been? We've always been here. You just found us. That's what I'm wearing. That's what I wear on top. And that's what I'm wearing <laughs> on the bottom. That's very funny. And anti-signage of who you are. No swooshes or any of that stuff. Like, Clothes that are connected to you, they're not branding someone else. I think so. Right? For me right now, it's like there's a sense of like elegant, a little bit of an interesting cut. Yep. Comfortable. And it's like what clothing should do where it gives the confidence where you could enter anywhere. And for my fourth and final course, Zach tells me about the simple and elegant way that he's been cooking lately. So it sort of sounds like if you were to create a dish around that, you're cooking. What, what are you cooking that's like what you're wearing and dressing now? I know you're a big cook. Yeah, yeah. That's, I love that kind of thinking. What would I be cooking? Think about it. I think it'd be like a really simple fish, like real, like high quality. Well, I've been cooking a lot of sardines because they're really healthy. Oh, And I just love, I do it just like, you know, in a simple olive oil and, and, and Dijon you know, and fresh herbs and roll them around and then cook them real fast. Oh, my gosh. You know, some great real garden tomatoes cooked with that as well. I've been also doing, like, carrots that I just peel, break them up, and then just really basically steam them and reduce down in a little dashi and add a little cumin at the end. I mean, it's just simple, but it's perfect. It's But it, it, what, what you said is, Mediterranean global, which I think if you if you put it in the in your machine or put it in a beaker and shook it up, you would have a great new line of clothes. If you just said, "What's my my new line is Mediterranean global?" Yeah, deal with it. Right, deal, deal with, with it. it. Right, exactly. Mediterranean <laughs> global. Right, healthy. Trying to eat really healthy, healthy as but this. also you got you got your Putinesque in there from your childhood. You know, you had to get the sardines, that stinky 
that stinky. Exactly. Some dashi in there. That umami, you know, that fish sauce got to be there because Chinatown. Do you have a, we- uh, a podcast that you cook you cook on or a website you cook I on? I don't. I mean, man, I'm going to tell you, just like the one or two minute tips from you, I, would, I think it would be amazing. I mean, I love it. This is what I do. And I think about, you know, different ways to do this all the time. So that I, you know, it's, it's like adventurous. I mean, right now, because I'm on such a personal health kick, that becomes a little bit more limiting, but it's still fun. Yeah, but it's okay. I mean, to me, yeah, I worked with Ian Schrager for 20 years. I worked in Royalton and all these places. I worked with fashion and food were 20 years apart. I could tell you that like the bistro scene is just came back. Is, and, and what's going to happen is, is fashion is going to be sens- sensitive to that. So it's yeah, very – they move, they move lockstep, fashion and food. Lockstep. I agree. They're 20 years ahead of everybody else. It's amazing. It's, just, yeah. it's almost like you can like, oh, bistro's coming back and what are we going to have? Fashion is going to like mimic what we would wear to a bistro. So it's this complete sensibility that travels with you. Yeah. And every 20 years – Something changes, and it changes not only in fashion and art, but definitely food. Because I was in food and fashion; that was all I saw. Yeah. So I was like, "Wow, that that of course they're gonna like this." I also think there's so many of these like young chefs right now that are really having fun, and it's cool to watch like new models, people that you know, cooking clubs. I don't know. Yeah. I think it's just this guy like Jonathan, who is pith, is kind of cool to be watching right now. You know, there's just different young guys that are like, you know, small micro restaurants, right? It's like authentic. It's authentic. It's real. And this is like what people want and how you translate that, you know, to a larger scale. My advice to any young people, like, take your time. Like creativity is a lifelong pursuit. And it's the process, it's the process that's the happiness. And I, you know, the hedge funds brought in unicorns, but creativity, <laughs> but creativity, right. you know, is about being a long distance runner because if you nurture it right, like a good garden, it's going to last, it's going to outlive you. Zach, I, I can't wait to see what the next 20 years bring. I can't wait to see what the next two months. I hope I see you in a couple of yeah, months at the next City Harvest event. Uh, and I'm looking forward to breaking some bread with you because it seems I'm hungry right now. It's okay. <laughs> 2 o'clock and I haven't had lunch yet. You got to come over for dinner sometime. Cheers, man. Thanks very much for listening to Four Courses with Jeffrey Zakarian, a production of iHeartRadio and Corner Table Entertainment. Four Courses is created by Jeffrey Zakarian, Margaret Zakarian, Jared Keller, and Tara Halper. Our executive producer is Christopher Hesiotis. Four Courses is produced by Jonathan Hawes Dressler. Our research is conducted by Jesslyn Shields. This episode was engineered by Molly Swanson and Josh Govier and edited and mixed by Joe Tisdall. Our talent booking is by Pamela Bauer at Dogtown Talent. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. 
I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo play. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information.